Well, here we are, the first weekend in December with Christmas coming at the end of the month. And it strikes me that a lot of the mental images that we have about Christmas come from medieval art. Sometimes they come from Christmas cards and other times from Christmas carols. Speaking of Christmas carols, sometimes it's challenging for children to know what the songs are about. In fact, sometimes kids don't sing the lyrics correctly. For example, in Joy to the World, instead of singing and makes the nations prove, some children declare and makes the nations prudes. (laughs) In the place of the cattle are lowing, some kids prefer the cattle are glowing. (laughs) Or this, instead of boughs of holly, a few have been known to belt out these words, deck the halls with Buddy Holly. (laughs) Well, speaking of kids and Christmas, next weekend, all three services, our Edge Kids Christmas Choir will be singing. And I talked to Sheila yesterday, get this, that's like 65 elementary kids and 45 preschoolers. Uh, So come early next week and we'll celebrate as they sing. Now, I want to give a warning as I begin because I want to begin by walking through a list of 10 common myths about Christmas. And you may experience some pushback as I go through this. Oh, well, because some of us don't have the correct lyrics of the first Christmas narrative. So I'm going to invite you, make sure you have your Bible handy so you can compare what is cultural with what is truly Christmas. And I've been compiling this list over the years and have added more recently. Now, did I mention you may push back (laughs) on this list that I'm calling Mary myth miss. Number one, there's no evidence Mary rode on a donkey to Bethlehem. You're like, what? <laughs> Luke 2, 4, and 5 only tell us that Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem. Does not tell us how they got there. Number two, there's no record of the innkeeper saying anything in the Christmas story. In fact, The innkeeper is not even mentioned in the Bible. You're like, really? Yeah, Luke chapter 2, verse 7 says, there was no place for them in the inn. Number three, we don't know the exact day of Jesus' birth. It was more likely that he was born in the spring or the fall, though it's totally fine that we recognize his birth on December 25th. Now, this one is going to be hard for many of you, but the ox and the lamb didn't keep time while the little drummer boy drummed on his drum. (laughs) Matthew 2.11 does say that the wise men fell down and they gave gifts. They worshiped the Christ child through the giving of their gifts. So maybe the drummer boy was just following their lead by offering his drum solo to Jesus. Number five, Jesus was not born in a wooden crib. Luke 2.7 says Jesus was laid in a what? A manger was a stone feeding trough. By the way, the Bible doesn't say there were animals present. Some of us are going to go home and change our manger scenes, aren't we? (laughs) 
Now, there may have been animals present. We know there was a manger. Mangers were used for animals, but the Bible doesn't say. Number six, even though one of our carols has this phrase, no crying he makes, it's actually very likely Jesus did cry. Uh, Just think later in his life when he wept, when Lazarus died, when he cried as he looked at Jerusalem and their hard hearts. In addition, Hebrews 2.17 says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Number seven, the Bible doesn't say, hark the herald angels sing. You're like, what? <laughs> Luke 2.13 indicates the angels were praising God and saying it doesn't say they were singing it could have been number eight the bible never says there were three wise men matthew 2 11 does mention three gifts which were given and so that's why we think there may have been three. Oh, and the bible doesn't say they came on camels either oh and the bible never records them singing we three kings from orient are well they were magi probably Persians from the land we know as Iran. Men who likely belonged to the group described in Daniel chapter 2, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers. As the context indicates, part of their focus involved astrology and astronomy. They were studying the stars. Our English word magic comes from the same word used to describe these pagan seekers. Number nine, speaking of the wise men, they did not arrive the night of Jesus' birth, but up to two years later. You're like, oh, I really got to change my manger seat now, right? Matthew 2, verse 2 and verses 9 and 10 indicates, oh, let me back up. Matthew 2, 11 indicates they went into the house where they saw the child The word for child is toddler. And number 10, speaking of manger scenes, the Bible doesn't state there was a star over the place where Jesus was born. Matthew 2, verse 2 and 9 and 10 indicates the star caused the wise men to leave, head out on their journey, and when they got closer, the star guided them to the house where Jesus was. You doing okay? Some of you look shocked. <laughs> well, check it out. Read, read it for yourselves. But there's one more myth, and this is a big myth, that you and I must address and we must correct at the start of the Christmas season. See, many believe that Jesus got his start in Bethlehem. And as we're going to see, because he is the Son of God and God the Son, Jesus Christ has always existed Unfortunately, many today know very little of the glory of of Jesus both before and even after his birth. So let's make sure we get the facts straight about the first Christmas narrative. So here's an assignment. Read the first two chapters of Matthew, first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Those four chapters together give us insight into the birth of Jesus and provide much of what we know about the first Christmas 
The Gospel of Mark, interestingly, skips over the birth of Jesus and gets right into the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Ah, the Gospel of John. John begins much earlier, way earlier than the accounts of Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke give us the details surrounding the birth of Jesus, while John reflects on the doctrinal significance and the identity of Emmanuel. We could say it like this. Luke gives us time stamps. He was a historian, a physician. He's putting it all together, and you read in Luke phrases like this, in those days or in that region. John's approach is more cosmic, eternal, Here's how John begins, in the beginning. You see, John's gospel is not so much biographical as it is theological. There are seven I am statements recorded in the gospel of John. Seven miracles to show that Jesus was the divine and is the divine son of God that we and I, that you and I are called to believe in. In fact, the purpose of the Gospel of John is spelled out. Let me draw our attention to that. The end of the Gospel of John, John tells us why he wrote it, John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I pray that today when we're done, you're like, I believe. We're going to spend time in John's gospel and that you leave here saying, I'm not sure I believed before, but I believe now. I have settled that, that he is the son of God and I now have life in his name. These first 18 verses, oh, they contain stunning truth that should give us a sense of wonder, that should lead to worship. Augustine said, it is beyond the power of man to speak as John does in his prologue. Calvin commented about these opening verses, it says more than our minds can take in. And so let's consider these words about the word, and let's do so worshipfully, humbly, with a sense of awe and wonder. Let's pause, let's ponder, and let's praise him for who he is. One author captured it like this, rather than focusing on bringing Jesus down to earth, John wants to take us up with him to heaven to a time when there was no creation, no humanity, no animals, not even angels, a time when Jesus, the word, coexistent with God in perfect love and unity of purpose. Join me as we pray. God, we, we realize that in, in one real sense, we're on holy ground here. Uh, you're going to stretch our minds with concepts and words and theology today. Lord, I pray that you would engage us, that we would offer ourselves willingly right at the beginning of this message to be learners, to be listeners, and to be those who put into practice what you have for us today. 
Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Help us to understand. Would you illuminate the scriptures for us? And Lord, here and those engaging online or listening later, there is a lot of hurt and a lot of pain during this time of year as well. Lord, there's people who are going through loss and pain and diagnoses and health situations and wonder and fear and relationship problems and financial struggles. And Jesus, we thank you that you came into our mess, that you came into our world. Lord, would you minister now to us all for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here's our main idea. Jesus had his birth in Bethlehem, but not his beginning because he has always been. Well, let's take our Bibles and let's open them up to John chapter 1. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to be in just three verses today. And we often read the scriptures together and often there's a larger chunk of scripture that we read. But today, I want us to read a little bit differently. We're going to read slowly, uh, meaningfully. And so it'll be up on, this, it's up on the screen if you want to follow along. If you have your Bible, open it up so you see the word in your own Bible. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in front of us, in front of you. You're welcome to take that as your own. So let's read slowly and meaningfully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You can be seated. (laughs) John takes us back to the beginning to show us that Jesus had no beginning. He goes behind creation to show that the baby in the feeding trough was the creator of the world. And there's not much of an introduction. He jumps right in. He gets right to the point so that you and I would have no uncertainty about who Jesus is, no uncertainty about his magnificence and his majesty. Notice, number one, Jesus is eternally God. John begins in a stunning way. Verse 1, in the beginning was the word. These first words are identical in Greek to the first two words in Genesis, in the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. Well, what follows in Genesis is a statement about God. What comes next in John is a declaration about the word showing that Jesus is God. In Genesis, God created by declaring words. In fact, eight times we read this phrase, and God said. And John explains that Jesus himself is the word of God. 
One commentator writes, in Genesis 1, the historian starts from the beginning and comes downward, thus keeping us in the course of time. Here, John starts from the same point but goes upward, thus taking us into eternity preceding time. Jesus is before the beginning of time. Consider John 8 Verse 58, Jesus is in a conversation, a dialogue, actually a confrontation with the Pharisees, and they're claiming Abraham is their father. Jesus says in verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. Whoa. Jesus is saying, hey, you guys keep talking about Abraham. Well, before Abraham was here, I was already here. But not only that, he uses the phrase, I am, equating himself with God as God revealed himself in Exodus chapter 3. So he is eternal because he has always and absolutely existed before time time itself. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The word beginning speaks of authority and rule and head and course. Jude 25 captures this well. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. One of the most amazing prophecies in the Old Testament is found in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, because with precision, Micah tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, in the city of David. That prophecy written some 500 years before. And many of us are familiar with the first part of Micah 5, verse 2, but let me draw our attention to this last part. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. My mind also goes to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Are you worshiping yet? Hebrews 13.8 picks up on this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The word word is the Greek word logos, which means the act of speaking and the thing spoken. One reformer called this the speech of God, while a more contemporary commentator remarked, this verse is the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all of Scripture. Now, this is made clear if you drop down to John 1.14. This is our text for Christmas Eve, for our four Christmas Eve services, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the Old Testament, Logos communicated the creative power of God. It was a reference to God himself. Psalm 33, 6, by the word, the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, 
all their host. In Greek culture, logos was more of a philosophical principle than a power. It was what gave meaning to all things, embodying thought and wisdom and rationality. And so John is doing something here. He's taking a word that both those from a Jewish background and those from a Greek background would understand, and yet he expanded and transcended its meaning. So since a word is an audible expression of a thought as the word, Jesus has revealed what goes on in the mind of God. He is the bridge between God and us. One pastor says it like this. John goes beyond the familiar concept of logos that his Jewish and Gentile readers would have had and presents Jesus Christ as personal being, fully divine, yet fully human. Now there are several passages in the Old Test several passages in the Old Testament which speak of the pre-incarnate Christ. These are also called Christophanies, appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament before Jesus took on flesh in Bethlehem. According to 1 Corinthians 10:4, Jesus led the Israelites in the wilderness. Check this, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Perhaps the clearest example of a Christophany is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, "Uh, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered, and they said to the king, true, O king. He answered them, "Uh, but I see four men unbound. And they're walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar says now. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. See, Jesus had his birth in Bethlehem, but not his beginning. Why? Because he has always been. Number two, Jesus is equally God. That next phrase clearly states that Jesus and the Father have always been together, and yet they're distinct from one another. And the Word was with God. Instead of using the common word with, which indicates nearness or closeness, John here uses a much stronger word, which means face to face, face to face. We see a hint of this in Genesis 1.26 with the use of plural pronouns. Then God said, God Elohim, which is plural, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So Jesus, as the Son of God, has always been face to face with God the Father. As we see when Jesus is praying, he says these words, and now Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now to reinforce his eternal preexistence, notice verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. The pronoun he shows that we are not saved by a principle. We're not saved by some impersonal power. No, we are saved by a personal Savior. 
As we were reminded in our Holy Helper series on the Holy Spirit, we worship a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, distinct in roles and yet co-eternal and co-equal. Friends, Jesus had his birth in Bethlehem, but not his beginning because he has always been. Number three, Jesus is essentially God. Verse one concludes, and the word, you see it, was God. This can't be even, can't be any clearer. In fact, in the original language, it's even stronger because the word God is in the emphatic position. The Greeks would put the word they wanted to emphasize first in the sentence, so it reads this way, God was the word. John could not have said it more emphatically. You know, Jesus himself said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Now think about a word. A word is composed of letters. A letter that the word begins with, there's a letter that the word ends with. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus declares he's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Alpha being the first letter, omega the last letter. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. According to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Jesus is God's last word to mankind. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken, think of the word, spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So John delivered weighty doctrine to show in simple words that Jesus is God. One pastor says, we fall down with Thomas before Jesus in John 20, verse 28, and we confess with wonder and joy, my Lord and my God. Friends, Jesus had his birth in Bethlehem, but not his beginning. Why? Well, because he has always existed. Number four, Jesus made everything. Oh, let's worship together as we learn how the world was created through the word. Notice in verse three, this is stated both positively and negatively. First, positively, all things were made through him, and then he states it negatively, and without him was not anything made that was made. <laughs> that phrase, all things, well, that's a categorically absolute statement. That phrase, through him, reminds us Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. We see in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So apart from Christ, there was not anything made that was made. During our unshaken and unshaken of the gospel and, and to be unshaken of what we believe and unashamed of the gospel series this fall, we focused an entire message on who Jesus is and we spent time in Colossians chapter 1. Check out verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the creator of creation, and he's the glue of the galaxies. And so since Christ made everything and without him was not anything made that was made, it follows that Jesus Christ was not made. (laughs) When you consider he is the creator of the universe, the birth of Jesus as a baby is even more amazing. One pastor says it well, the creator of creation humbled himself and became a creature in creation. Jesus, who was the agent of creation, stepped out of eternity, laid aside his glory, and entered this world as a human baby. That's why this season is not about trees and tinsel, packages and parties, bows and boxes or meals and mistletoe. This season is about him. Now, one reason we're spending time in these four messages in John chapter 1 is because Jesus deserves it. And we need to focus on who Jesus is. Uh, There's another reason, and that has to do with our state of theology survey that we took this past summer. See, according to the state of theology survey, way too many of us believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. So if you add up the percentages here, nearly 60% of us answered correctly, but according to the survey, one-third of those who took it believed Jesus was a created being, and 8% of us are not sure. Brothers and sisters, as John 1, 1 through 3 makes clear, Jesus was not created because he is the creator. Now, we are not known as a church that recites creeds. I think it's important at this point to affirm the statement of faith known as the Nicene Creed. We sang the Apostles' Creed last weekend. Listen to the careful wording, the preciseness of this creed. Uh, The creeds were in response to heresy, And so as churches realized that heresy, that false teaching was creeping into churches, they said, well, what is it that we believe? And they hammered it out. They opened the scriptures and they laid forth what it is that they believe. And so listen then to this creed, the Nicene Creed, which addressed the heresy of Arianism, which was popular in the fourth century. That false teaching, Teaching denies the deity of Jesus Christ. By the way, that teaching is still followed by Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons today who believe that Jesus was a created being. So listen then to these words. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, here it is, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Oh, look at and listen to this next line. comes right from John 1. Through him, 
all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and Son is worshiped and glorified, and he spoke through the prophets. Now, even though I took a pot shot at the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the last verse of that carol has some robust doctrine. Check this out. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Do you know without his birth, there wouldn't be a second birth for us? Listen to what Matthew one twenty one says. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because the name Jesus means Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. And that is no myth. I wonder today if some of you are just ready to say, I want to settle this today. I want to believe and I want to receive. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. If that describes you today, whether you're engaging in another place or you're right here in the sanctuary, would you cry out to God and say something like this, God, I am a self-centered sinner, and I've just been living my life for, in my own way, doing what I want when I want it. Lord, I confess all of that is sin, and I repent of how I've been living. I turn from that, and I turn to you, Jesus. Thank you that you came to earth, and then you walked to the cross, and you died in my place as my substitute. And when your blood was shed, it paid the price for all of my sins, satisfying the righteous and holy wrath of God Almighty. And thank you, Jesus, that you were raised from the dead on the third day, showing that you have power, power over my own depravity, power over the devil, and power over death itself. And so I believe, and now I receive. Would you apply what you've done to my life so I receive you by faith, Thank you for being born, and now I want to be reborn. Come into my life, save me from my sins, and Holy Spirit, now would you guide me and lead me for the rest of my life to serve you faithfully as your disciple, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen.